Well, it's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you very much, Pastor Arnold, for the kind and um, welcome introduction. Um, the scripture we're going to be looking at this morning is Luke chapter 10. I'll invite you to turn there. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. As you're turning, let me just uh, say how uh, honored we are to be able to be here and very much appreciate it, the kind invitation. One of the reasons that I'm here is because uh, Gordon College is a Christian college in Boston. It's a wonderful school, nationally ranked Christian liberal arts college, and we are interested in drawing some students from Singapore. So uh, after the service, my colleague Ted will be at the table. If you're interested in picking up some information about Gordon, we'd love for you to learn more. Love for you to take an interest in what the Lord is doing in our midst. I've been at Gordon for three years. Uh, before that, I was a faculty member at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And before that, was at Princeton University. And um, I get lots of questions in the early years of serving as uh, a college president. People want to know what my vision is for the school. They're curious about uh, where is the school going? What are, are the main things we're focused on? But I can always tell when they first meet me, there is a question in the back of their head. Exactly how old are you? I'll admit it. I'm 26 and uh, somehow the Lord has used me. No, I'm kidding. I'm 42. And uh, but you went along very nicely. Thank you very much for that. <clears throat> It's interesting because when I was uh, going through the search process, the eldest member of the search committee is also probably the most respected person uh, in our college community. His name is Tom Phillips. Tom served as the CEO of Raytheon, a very large defense contractor based in Boston. He actually has had a significant role in global Christianity. There is a, a wonderful ministry leader named Chuck Colson who founded a a ministry called Prison Fellowship Ministries. He had worked in the um, Nixon White House, was involved um, with uh, all of the incidents that happened around Watergate and actually served time in prison. It was actually Tom Phillips who witnessed to Chuck Colson that led him to become a Christian. And so Tom has had an amazing story. He was named president of Raytheon at age 37. And so he pulled me aside and he said, you know, Michael, everybody's talking about how young you are. And, uh, you know, I just got to say, what took you so long? It's actually a very good question. This morning, I'd like to share with you a little bit about how the Lord has uh, been at work in my own life and prepared me for the journey to Boston. Let's pray. Open up your word to us, O Lord, that we might receive it in a new and a fresh way. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God, I ask you to take... Take our minds and think through them. Take my words and speak to them. Take our hearts and set them afire that we might be changed people, having encountered your word for our lives today. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting because Jesus is a different kind of theologian. Most of the time when you and I think about theologians, we think about what we might call conceptual theologians. We think about Martin Luther or um, John Calvin or St. Augustine or Aquinas or in the 20th century, Reinhold Niebuhr or Karl Barth. These are all people who have been very significant theological speakers. Jesus, however, is what we might call a metaphorical theologian. He makes his points like a dramatist or a poet. He uses stories to communicate principles and key ideas. 
He has 39 different parables are recorded in the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 28 of those parables are actually recorded here in the gospel of Luke. It's interesting because some of the most famous parables we actually get uh, in Luke's gospel. The parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the persistent widow. And here, the parable of the good Samaritan. This particular passage of scripture is probably one of the best known around the world. It's a model for us of how we ought to live our lives. And yet sometimes we can hear passages so frequently that we lose the, the real impact on our heart. So this morning I want us to hear it afresh in a new and vibrant way. Luke was the only Gentile writer of the Bible. To the best of our knowledge, he was the only Gentile. And so it's interesting because throughout his writings, he actually wrote one quarter of the entire New Testament. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, both written by this man. And together that comprises about 25% of the entire New Testament. Throughout those volumes, Luke writes as a historian. So many times when you and I are thinking about the great passages of Scripture... Uh, For example, the the story of Jesus's um, death and resurrection that we recite at Easter or the story of Jesus's birth. It is Luke's gospel that we actually encounter. And so that's where we uh, get a chance to to know exactly what it is that um, the historical account we get from Luke. It's also interesting because we study Gentile accounts of Luke's message. So. Whereas Matthew traces Jesus's genealogy back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. Luke's gospel traces Jesus's genealogy all the way back to Adam, the father of all humanity. This morning, I want to talk uh, about this particular passage, but I'm deeply informed by the work of a cultural anthropologist named Kenneth Bailey, who wrote a book many years ago called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Let's turn here to the two dialogues that appear. There's a dialogue one and dialogue two in Luke's chapter 10. Let me read it for you. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? The lawyer responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to an innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus then asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus then said, go and do likewise. So there are two dialogues. Let's start with that. 
There's a dialogue between Jesus and the lawyer. And then there is the parable. And then there is a dialogue between Jesus and the lawyer again. It's interesting because if you look at this particular passage of scripture, you see that the very first question that is asked there in verse 25, 25 through 28, an expert in the law stood up and said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting because that's actually a flawed question. What do any of us do to inherit something? Inheritance by its very definition is a gift, something that is given to us. Not something that we do ourselves, but it's something that has been given to us because we've been grafted into the family. The entire message of the Bible is about how you and I have been adopted by God and brought into his family. That we have been become part of his community. That Jesus has brought us into his family. So the lawyer asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When in fact, that's not what he's trying to really ask. The Gospel of Luke tells us he wanted to justify himself. So he's looking for a particular kind of answer. It's interesting because in verse 27, the lawyer responds to Jesus and says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus says to the lawyer, You've answered correctly, do this and you will live. What you may not be aware is that the lawyer did something very smart here. He actually got something right that you and I might miss. In the ancient Near East, when when somebody uh, answered a question from Scripture, from the Hebrew Bible, from the Torah, they would give answers as it appeared in canonical order. The, The command to love your neighbor as yourself, that actually appears in Leviticus 19. The command about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That appears in Deuteronomy. So if you know your um, Bible memory drill, you remember that the first five books of the Bible, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So normally, if you asked a Jew back in Jesus' day a question and they were going to quote scripture, they would have quoted it in the order that appeared in the Bible. So they would have quoted the Leviticus passage of Love your neighbors yourself before they would have quoted the Deuteronomy passage about loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the lawyer didn't do that. Instead, he did it in reverse order. And Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. So already we need to give the lawyer a little bit of grace because he got it right. He knew that you cannot love another person until you first have your relationship with God right. It's the basic teaching of the Ten Commandments. As you may be aware, there are four commandments of the Ten Commandments. The first four deal with our relationship with God, the vertical commandments. The last six of the Ten Commandments are horizontal. They deal with our relationship with one another. You must first get your relationship with God right before you can get your relationship with others right. That's the key thing. So we see here... In um, Luke chapter 10, the first round of dialogue. Let's look at that. So the lawyer asked Jesus a question and Jesus does not respond with an answer. Instead, he asks the lawyer a question. Then what happens is the lawyer answers Jesus's question. Jesus then answers the lawyer's question. It's parallel. So you start with the lawyer asking a question 
And then at the very end, Jesus will answer that question. But in between, Jesus asks the lawyer a question. The lawyer answers Jesus. What we find is that throughout this particular passage, there's a poetic symmetry to what Jesus is trying to communicate here. He never gives us the easy answers. In many ways, he catches us by surprise. The second round of dialogue begins in chapter in verse 29. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asked another question of Jesus. And who is my neighbor? Jesus then is going to respond with a very long story where he tells the story of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. At the end of that particular question, after the story, then Jesus asks the lawyer a question. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor? The lawyer answers him, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus answers the lawyer's question first by saying, go and do likewise. It's interesting because when the lawyer asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There are basically two possibilities he could give. One, Jesus could say, your neighbor are your fellow Jews. That was a very common understanding back in the ancient Near East, that Jews were neighbors to fellow Jews. Or it is possible, looking at the Levitical law, it is possible that Jesus would say, it's not just your fellow Jews, but it's also the people who live close by, in close proximity, who might be the stranger or the alien within your gate. So somebody who lives basically bordering your land. But that's about as far as it's going to go when you're talking about who is our neighbor. But Jesus does something quite radical. Instead... He challenges us even to this day. In the ancient Near East, there were basically three types of people who supported the religious life of the Jewish community. There were the priests, the Levites who functioned as the assistants to the priests. And then there were Jewish laymen. And those Jewish laymen would support those uh, priests and Levites. So it's interesting because here... In the parable of the Good Samaritan, there are a couple of basic stock characters that Jesus introduced, the priest and the Levite. One key thing that you need to know is that back in Jesus's day, if you were to tell a story among the Jewish community about somebody who got hurt or was victimized, everybody would assume that that person was a fellow Jew. So that's very important. All of the people hearing Jesus' story will assume that the man who falls into the hands of the robbers is a fellow Jew. Someone just like themselves. The road that goes between Jerusalem and Jericho, the one that Jesus talks about, it actually was about 25 kilometers in length. It was a dangerous road, winding road. Um, it was so dangerous that it was known as the way of blood because so many people got hurt. There would be a number of twists and turns along that rocky road and robbers would wait in the corner or in the bend in the road and then they would come out and attack people. So everyone knew that it was a quite dangerous road. The, the priest who comes along this particular journey that Jesus begins to tell you about. It's interesting because Jerusalem is up on the hill. Jericho is down the hill. He lives in Jericho, but he works in Jerusalem. Back in Jesus's day, if you were a priest, you would basically work for a week and then you would be on uh, holiday for a week. 
and then you go back to work for a week and then you go back home for a week. So it was not like working nine to five and then going home. It was you're pretty much on all the time for a week and then you were off for a week. So we assume by the way Jesus tells the story where the priest is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a priest who is on his way home after a week of work. As he's coming down this particular road, he notices that there is a man who has been left on the side of the road uh, half dead. Now, it's interesting because priests back in Jesus's day were actually relatively well to do. So they probably would not be walking along the road. They would be being carried along the road. They have, would have servants who would be carrying them. And so they would be on a chariot sounds a bit too glorious, but they would be basically a basket that would carry them down the road. When the priest notices this man who has been hurt, he has to make a decision. He sees this man who is half dead. Now, if in fact the man is dead and the priest comes in contact with that dead body, that's going to be a problem because he's going to have to go through a week long purification ritual for both him and his entire household. Because the Jews believed that if you were um, holy, if you were the man of God, you should not come into contact with that which was unclean and a dead body was considered unclean. Now remember, he's just worked for a week and he's on his way home. But if he comes into contact with a dead body, he's going to have to turn back around and go back to the temple and spend the entire week that he's supposed to be with his family instead going through this purification ritual. So he makes a judgment call. He realizes this is a busy thoroughfare. There are lots of people who are coming along and they are not subject to the same requirements about purification. And so one of them could easily take care of this man. But instead, I'm going to be able to go home and be with my family. After all, God wants us to be deeply committed to the lives of our family. So you and I hear the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We think the priest is a bad guy. But in fact... He made a judgment call. It's one that you and I make every single day. We pass by somebody every day who is in need, who is hurt, and who could use our help. But for various reasons, we don't stop. We get busy in our schedule. We have other things that are taking up our time. And so we pass by on the other side. We do exactly as the priest did. The second person who's coming along to see this man is the Levite. Now, when Jesus is telling the story, everybody will assume that the Levite who is following the priest is actually his assistant. This is a a man who worked with the priest for the last week up in Jerusalem, and now they're both going home to, to Jericho. The Levite is seen as an assistant, but they are also seen as someone who knows the law less They're not as knowledgeable about the law. So this Levite sees his boss come by and pass by on the other side. And whether or not he knows exactly what's going on in the mind of the priest, he naturally assumes that there must be a very good religious reason why the priest does not stop to help this man. And therefore, he makes the same decision not to to help the man. Because my boss clearly knows more than I do. He's my superior, and so I defer to his knowledge. So he passes by on the other side. And then Jesus says, there's a Samaritan who is coming along. He sees the man lying there on the road, and he takes pity on him. 
And the Bible tells us that he makes good on all the things that the priest and the Levite could have done, but they did not do. You see, the Levite would have been somebody who'd be very skilled with their hands. And so he very easily could have bandaged up the wounds. The priest could have easily taken the man and put him on his chariot so he could ride there. But instead, they, they do neither of those things. So the Bible says that the, the Samaritan comes by, he manages up his wounds, he helps him onto his horse or donkey, and he carries him into, um, the, into town. And then he provides two denarii, which is basically two days earnings to help make this man um, have a, a good hotel room in which he can stay. And then he does something even more extraordinary. He tells the innkeeper, if he has any other debts, I will pay them when I come. Now, that's a very important little detail you and I might miss. Because it was quite common in the ancient Near East for somebody to be able to pay for their first night of a hotel stay, but not all of their bill. And if you could not pay your full bill at the end of when you check out, you're actually thrown into jail. This man wanted to care for the hurt man. The Samaritan really wanted to be the right kind of neighbor. And so what he does is he says, I'm going to make sure that this man is not going to be put into jail. I will take care of his full bill when uh, I return. It's interesting because it probably would have been acceptable for the lawyer to hear a story about a Jew helping a Samaritan. Now, they didn't get along, but it probably would have been tolerable for them because there is an ethic in the Hebrew Bible that says you ought to care and love for people. And so that would make sense. But Jesus surprises us because he flips the characters. And that's even more dramatic because when the the people in Jesus' day would hear this story, they would have expected the third character would be a certain person. I mentioned earlier that there were three classes of people who worked in the temple back in Jesus' day. The priest, the Levite, and the Jewish layman. And just as uh, we do today with um, dramas or TV shows, there's a set of sort of set characters. And many times those set characters introduce a dynamic or a flow. So, for example, if I were to tell you a story, and the first story is about say, um, a president of the United States. And then the second character is a governor of a state. You're going to naturally assume that the third character is a mayor of a town because those go in a certain hierarchy, a president, a governor, and a mayor. Similarly, when Jesus tells the story of a priest and then of a Levite, who do they assume is the third figure? A Jewish layman. So they're expecting this to be a story about a Jewish layman who is the hero. When in fact, it's the Samaritan who is the hero. The tendency to read scripture selectively or to read it the way we would like it to be read is very old. Something that's been around for a long time. The real message of the gospel is that Jesus takes many of our basic assumptions and he turns them upside down. Where we're not expecting them. He surprises us. It's not the Jewish layman who is the hero. It's the Samaritan. That was really hard for the lawyer to swallow. For him to think about. That being the way in which Jesus would work. And so when Jesus asks him. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law. Could only say. 
obliquely the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even name the Samaritan. Jesus then responds, go and do likewise. I don't know if you have um, had to move recently. There was a season in my life when my wife and I moved uh, basically four different times in three years. And I tell you, when you have to pack up all of your belongings and move things around, it's really tough. Uh, it takes a lot of work and effort. And I'm actually very glad I haven't had to move in three years. It's interesting because um, if you had told me five years ago, I would be here in Singapore representing Gordon College as its president and here preaching at Grace Baptist Church, I would have said, you are crazy. Because you see, I was very happy five years ago living in Houston, Texas. My wife had just given birth to our twin daughters, Caroline and Emily. We were very involved in our church. I was teaching Sunday school. I was a faculty member at a a top 20 research institution. My research was getting a lot of grant money and attention more than it deserved. My teaching was going well. I had good relationships. We really felt God's pleasure in that place. We were very comfortable, very happy. We had a home that we loved. We were close to our family. Everything was going just great. One day, I was in the office and I got a telephone call from a man named Price Harding. Price called. uh, He was a a headhunter, an executive search consultant. Now, because of the work that I do, I've interviewed a lot of very senior leaders. And so executive search consultants oftentimes would call me and ask me for recommendations. They were looking for a new member of a board of directors for a company or a, a new CEO. And they often thought I might know of somebody who would be a good fit. So he called to tell me about uh, a particular search he was working on for the presidency at Gordon College. Immediately, while he's talking, I begin thinking in my mind, who can I recommend to him? Who would be somebody that would be a, a good fit? He talked for about five minutes. At the end, I said, Price, I've got several names. Let me just offer them to you. And he said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. before that, he said, I'm actually calling to talk about you. And I said, oh, come on. What are you talking about? I'm 37 years old. I've not been a dean. I've not been a department chair. I've not been a provost. Uh, you know, I, I'm going through tenure. This is this is crazy. I'm, it's way, way too early. And uh, he said, well, you know, I'm just I think you've got the right skill set, something that maybe the Lord might uh, call you to. And I said, you know, Price, I, I appreciate that very much. And maybe someday I would love to be a college president. But right now I'm really happy with what I'm doing. I feel God's pleasure. I think I'm doing exactly what I ought to do. Maybe 10 to 15 years from now, I'd be open to it, but not right now. He said, well, would you at least pray about it? Well, what am I supposed to say? No. I said, sure, I'll pray. But I have to say, my heart was not really in those prayers. And I was sort of lackadaisical about it for about a month or so. Then in early November of 2010, a little bit over three years ago, I got another phone call in my office. I picked up the phone and uh, it was my mom. And I don't know if you've had this situation, but the very first word she spoke, I could tell something was very wrong. She said, Michael, I've got some very um, upsetting news. Your cousin Trent uh, was killed this morning in a car accident. I was very close to Trent 
He was 32 at the time he died. He left behind a wife and three young children. I had actually performed the wedding ceremony for he and his wife. I loved him very much. What had happened is uh, Trent had been driving that morning and the roads were wet. And uh, as he was going down the, the highway, major thoroughfare, he noticed that a, a police car had, um, had hydroplaned on the road and had spun out of control and was over on the side of the road in a ditch. And my cousin was one of the first people to come upon the scene. So he pulled over and got out of his car to go and make sure that the police officer was okay. As he was doing that, um, he had seen the police officer and was basically trying to uh, to uh, help him. There was a, a large uh, truck, a tractor trailer truck that was coming down the highway. And the driver began to apply his brakes, but he was not stopping fast enough. And so he applied his brakes a bit more. And as he did that, the, the trailer part of the, of the rig swung around and it actually hit my cousin, killing him instantly. The family asked me to deliver the eulogy at my cousin's funeral. It was the hardest thing I've had to do. Here he was, a man who had been a good Samaritan, who was struck down in the prime of his life for what appeared to be no real purpose. I delivered the eulogy and um, then we said our goodbyes to our family. My wife and I packed our kids up in the car and we got into our car to, to drive back to Houston. As we were going down the, the highway, it was quiet uh, in the car. The girls were asleep and it was a bright, sunny day. As I was going down the highway, I began to just sort of think about the life of my cousin it was about six weeks before Christmas, so I began to wonder, yeah, I wonder what he was planning on giving his kids for Christmas that year. I wonder what he thought his next big promotion might be. What was he hoping would happen? I wonder what he thought he, he might be doing 10 to 15 years from now. And in that moment, I remembered that phone call I had had a month earlier with Price. And it dawned on me. We are not promised tomorrow. Driving down that highway that morning, I made a commitment to the Lord. I realized that in part, the reason why I had resisted um, the invitation to consider the position at Gordon was because I was concerned about status and prestige I was a faculty member at a top institution being asked to go to an institution that maybe you've never heard of. I was very happy and content and I didn't want to give up my comfort. I was quite comfortable and I sensed that God might be calling me to something that would be uncomfortable or not the right thing to do. But I realized the Lord brings opportunities into our life every single day when we can show mercy to another person when we can do something that will make a difference in another person's life. Our job is not to be successful. It's just to be faithful. But we must be faithful in the daily activities we go about and say to the Lord, Lord, today I am your servant here to do your bidding. Guide and direct me in the way I should go. 
So while I was driving down that road that day, I made a confession to the Lord that I had not been obedient, that I had not been open to his leading, and I wanted to be. And I also made a promise to the Lord that if in his providence, for one reason or another, I ended up moving to Gordon College and serving as its president, that I would tell the story of my cousin Trent and how I was moved by a real life Good Samaritan, a parable that had broken into my own life and changed me. This morning I make good on that promise. I don't know what it is that the Lord has in your life that he wants you to do. But I can assure you that the very best place to be is right in the center of his will. Sometimes it is not easy or comfortable or prestigious to do exactly what God wants you to do. But it is the very best place to be. Who is the one who showed how to be a good neighbor? Jesus asks. The one who demonstrated mercy. Jesus then has a message for all of us. Go. And do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, we do very much want our lives to be yielded to you. We pray that you will take us today and to be open to your leading. We pray that whatever you are calling us to do, big or small, give us the courage and the wisdom to yield to your leading. We really do want to honor you this day. Go with us now. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let us rise as we respond and offer our lives to God our everyday.